folks, we're going to be hearing some rock and pop music. Yeah. From the charts. Yeah. Okay. Now, now don't worry. Don't worry. I, I'm not going to pretend this morning that I am in any way in touch with popular culture. Okay, so clearly I am not cool. Something that my children would be happy to confirm to you. Uh, Daddy is not cool. Uh, One thing he's not is cool. But uh, the the truth is, folks, that I have never uh, bought any uh, CDs from any of the artists that we're going to listen to uh, this morning, apart from our first band. Our first band is a band called Depeche Mode. Now, any of you remember Depeche Mode? Okay, all right. Well, I used to have a Depeche Mode tape, and uh, one time, this is a funny story, a funny story about my Depeche Mode tape. I'm driving along, uh, listening to my Depeche Mode tape, and like you do, I was kind of bouncing around in the car, listening to my tape, uh, singing along uh, with Depeche Mode, and I see these flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror, and I think, I cannot believe it. I know that I have done nothing wrong. I'm driving along and I think, well, you know, maybe he's pulling me over because uh, he wants to uh, congratulate me on my driving or, or maybe he's just a, a bored policeman who needs to stop people at random even though they've done nothing wrong. So I stop the car. He comes around the side of the car. Uh, I wind down the window. He says, Sam, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, yes. Are you aware, sir, that you were indicating to turn right for 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? And I'm thinking, well, excuse me, I had not realised that you know, early indication is a treasonable offence. You know, I'm thinking, this, 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 sure, this is all right. And then he says, um, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, um, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? I said, three months ago. He said, um, uh, he gets out this bag, he says, please, um, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your uh, responses to my questions are a bit slow. I said, look, I'm just a slow kind of bloke, I say to him. So he gets me to blow into the bag. I do blow into the bag and uh, I hand him the bag and I say to him, look, it's negative, isn't it? He said, well, yes, it is negative. He says, it must be broken. (laughs) And then he says, this is not exaggerated, this is literally what happened. He said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And so eventually he let me go. And what he, you know, he let me go, although with a, with a very stern warning about the perils of early indication at junctions. What a terrible thing that is. But what he didn't realise was that I was high on Depeche Mode. And um, Depeche Mode, as you may remember, started out as a sort of bright and breezy techno synth group from Basildon, but uh, they became increasingly cynical about life and about faith, as you will hear in our first song, Personal Jesus. Now, just hold that thought for a second. Now, complete change of scene. Imagine you're a 14-year-old boy living in the Midwest of the USA, and imagine you really want to shock your very conservative parents by putting up a poster in your bedroom that will really alarm them. Whose face on your bedroom wall would most trouble mum and dad? Of course, Marilyn Manson. So we're going to hear Marilyn Manson's cover version of Personal Jesus, but first, listen up, 
the Depeche Mode. So Marilyn Manson has said many times that he thinks the whole Jesus thing is a con. Uh, so you reach out and touch, not reality, but all you touch is faith. In other words, there's nothing actually there. According to Marilyn Manson, Jesus is an imaginary friend. He's someone who hears your prayers. He's someone who's there to sort of help you through life. But he's not real. He's your own personal Jesus. Now, for many years of my life, that was my view also, probably, I would have said. I had no idea that there was any evidential basis for Christianity. I thought the whole thing required a massive leap of faith. And we'll talk about that more in a second once we've heard from our next band, Eels. Now, the lead singer of Eels is Mark Oliver Everett. And his dad, his dad Hugh Everett III, was the originator of the Many Worlds Hypothesis. In the Many Worlds Hypothesis, the atheist admits how unlikely our universe is. The atheist admits that since the mid-1960s, scientists have shown that the universe had a beginning. And the atheist even concedes that the precise fine-tuning of our universe points to a creator. Now, you and I know that we can't just have matter and antimatter turning up by chance. You can't just have neutrons and electrons just popping into existence for absolutely no reason. You can't have the strong and the weak nuclear force just self-creating at exactly the same moment for absolutely no reason. Even if all these atheistic miracles did occur, you would still have to have all of them happening at exactly the same time, and you'd have to have exactly the right amounts of each in order for any universe to ever be created. In the earliest seconds of the universe's existence, all these elements have to turn up with the number on the dials being set just so. Any messing with any of about 17 different dials, no universe, no us. We now understand there is zero chance of a self-creating universe. But if you don't like the idea of God making the universe, what do you do? You go with Hugh Everett III. You go, you, you introduce an additional layer of complexity by saying that before our universe was formed, there were, once upon a time, billions of hypothetical universes that were all trying to come into existence. But of course, Hugh Everett's multiverse theory doesn't actually get rid of God. Because you've still got the question, where did the ensemble of hypothetical universes that were trying to come into existence, where did they all come from? Who was powerful enough? Who was intelligent enough to create these billions of hypothetical universes? And so it turns out that actually believing in God does not require a massive leap of faith. After all, it's a rather small step. It's mostly logic. A universe as complex and as finely tuned as ours requires intelligence 
And I call that superintelligence, I call that superintelligence God. But what I like about Mark Everett, son of Hugh Everett, what I like about Mark Everett of Eels is that he's honest. If you're getting bullied at school, like the song says, like the dog-faced boy is, and your mum won't help you, and there is no Jesus to save you because there's no God, then you may well hang your head in sorrow because there's no hope in this life or in the next. Richard Dawkins says there is no meaning, no purpose, just blind, pitiless indifference. But the French existentialists, they couldn't live with that sort of reductionism. They said, no, 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 we should try and create some sort of meaning for ourselves. Uh, We should try and authenticate our own existence by doing something heroic, by some heroic acts of self-authentication and self-expression. And they said that one of the ways that you and I could authenticate our existence was by committing suicide. And seeing as life has no purpose, any act of self-expression is equally valid. And once this philosophical idea of existentialism got into popular culture, it was absorbed by a whole generation. A generation who found themselves in the early 1990s a very reluctant hero. A hero called Kurt Cobain. And as you may know, the tragedy is that six months after Kurt Cobain wrote and recorded that song, he killed himself. He committed suicide in April 1994 at the age of 27. The magazine Q said, quote, What Kurt Cobain had wasn't enough and wasn't right. His suicide proved that all these sources of pleasure and pride were outweighed by pain. Everybody knows unhappiness, but Kurt Cobain, the idol of a whole generation worldwide in the music scene, Kurt Cobain knew despair. He sang, I'm a stain. I'm so ugly. I hate myself. And I want to die. And millions of people took to Nirvana's music because it expressed the alienation that they felt deep down in their hearts. And that feeling of emptiness is a feeling that says, somehow in my life, ah, Things are not quite as they should be. Things are not quite how I would want them to be. Somehow I don't feel complete. Somehow something's missing. I'm not satisfied. Here's our next song from the Kings of Leon. Kings of uh, Leon lyricist Caleb Followill told the Daily Telegraph in September 2008 that he had written that particular song when he was drunk. He told the NME, quote, When it was played back to me, and I heard the line, Jesus don't love me, no one ever carried my load. He said, when I heard that line, my eyes welled up with tears. It was the worst thing that I could imagine. Can I ask you this morning, as you hear these songs, can you hear the pain? Can you hear the sense of alienation 
It's like going into the recording studio and singing, I've got all these millions of dollars, but I still feel this pain. Yes, I've got millions of dollars, but so what? All it's delivered me is existential angst. Freddie Mercury literally asked the question, does anybody know what we're living for? If this life is all there is, then what happens if you get everything that you ever wanted in this life and it still doesn't deliver the satisfaction you hoped for? You left feeling empty and dissatisfied. What do you do then? The social phenomenon that jumps off the page for me is that millions of people can relate to this feeling of isolation, of alienation. Millions of people can relate to this sense of not having peace. That's why they buy the records. That's one of the reasons why they download the tunes. Millions of people are deeply troubled by the idea that life is ultimately pointless. Why? Because when you kiss your wife, you know it's more than just an exchange of microbes. When you fall in love, you know it's not just enzymes. You know, no, when I fell in love, something transcendent just happened. When you burst into tears at the birth of your first child, as you hold that beautiful child in your arms, you know she's not just a sack of chemicals. You know that he's not just a sack of chemicals. He has a spirit, she has a spirit, or a soul, or a something. But folks, what if your worldview doesn't allow you to believe that? What do you do then? Well, you feel alienated, you feel alone. And so when you hear someone singing on the radio who feels the same way that you do, there's some kind of connection. Oh, I like that band. Oh, I like that track. I'll download that when I get home. Do you see the point? It's the general public who are buying these records. It's not just rock stars who feel this way. Ordinary people feel that there is something missing. What is it? What is missing? The Bible says that what is missing is the Jesus of history. The real Jesus. Let's listen to our next song. The revolutionary idea in Christianity is that when Jesus walked amongst the lepers and the tax collectors and the fishermen and the prostitutes of his day, that that really was God walking on earth. A God who saw the human drama of suffering and decided to dive in and suffer with the worst of them. A crucified God. God came down in the person of Christ. Billy Graham used to tell this story about how he was walking along the road one day in North Carolina with his little boy Franklin. And as they're walking along, they'd stumble upon an ant's nest that somebody had accidentally trodden in. And uh, Franklin looks at this ant's nest, all these injured ants, and says, Daddy, Daddy, look at all these injured ants. Who's going to help them? 
Daddy, Franklin says, if only you could shrink yourself and become an ant to help them. And Billy Graham's sermon illustration mind goes, Yeah? Because that is Christianity in a nutshell. The God who created the universe, the God who invented quantum mechanics, the God who invented the properties of hydrogen and carbon, the God who created all the matter that currently exists in our vast entire universe, that God shrunk himself and became a man. And so Kanye West wants to turn atheists into believers. And that only makes sense if Jesus was telling the truth. So let's think about the claims of Christ. For example, when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, he said that he had chosen the time of his own birth. Now, you and I didn't choose the time when we were born, did we? I mean, I don't know, maybe our mum and our dad got, our, got their diaries together and they tried to choose the time that we would be born. But actually, you know what? We had zero choice in the matter. I might just as easily have never have been born for all I knew. My point is this, I had no say in the matter. By stark contrast, Jesus claimed that he had been living in heaven for generations, and Jesus claims to have been kind of watching what's going on on earth for generations, then he thinks, ah, this is my moment. I'm going in. Who talks like that? That's how Jesus talked. That's what he said to Pontius Pilate. He claimed to have been born at a time of his own choosing. The Jews said to Jesus, look Jesus, you are only, you're less than 50 years old, yet, Jesus, you claim to have seen Abraham. Jesus, Abraham lived hundreds of years ago. How can you possibly claim to have seen him? Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Well, I am was God's name. I mean, in the Old Testament, when God is asked, what is your name? God answers, my name is, I am who I am. So it was outrageous for any skilled labourer from Nazareth to go around Galilee calling himself I am but that's what Jesus did one of the big surprises for me when I first read the New Testament was how much Jesus talked about himself yes Jesus is humble, yes he is humble but he's not modest he was very matter of fact about his own importance he said if you want to have a relationship with God you need to come to me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus met people who are hungry for love, for security, for significance. And Jesus would come along to them and say, hey, I am the bread of life. Eat of me. In other words, if you want your hunger satisfied, you need to come to me. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus met people who were looking for direction. And he said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, all the surveys show that people today are less happy than they were a hundred years ago. 
And one of the reasons the survey showed that people are less happy than they were a hundred years ago is because people today think that they live as if this life is all there is. Jesus said, I've got good news for you. I have come that you might have abundant life in this life and paradise in the next. I can deliver eternal life in the next, Jesus claimed. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone would believe in me, whoever you are, you'll never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Can I ask you this morning, tell me about your life as you meet this Jesus who walks on this same earth that you walk, this God-man, as you meet him, what's happening in your life? This book here is the largest, thickest, heaviest book that I could find. Are you carrying a load? Are you carrying a load through life? Why? Does it feel like you're carrying a load? Do you know why? Because nobody ever carried your load for you. So you're still carrying it. You can bring your load to Jesus this morning. Jesus who would come up to you and say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is literally offering to carry your load. He's offering to take it from you so that you can go free. Jesus will carry your load. And when we wrap things up, as we will in a few minutes' time, I'll finish this talk and I'll invite the band back. I want to ask you, if you are carrying a load, maybe it's a load of pain, maybe it's a load of sin against God, Maybe it's a feeling of isolation, of alienation. There's something missing in your life. You've never quite been able to put your finger on what it is. But it's a lack of peace. And that for you is a load that you carry through life. I'm going to ask you this morning to bring that load and to give it to the burden bearer. To give it to this God-man who wants to take it from you. This loving Saviour who came to earth for you to take it from you so that you could enjoy this life and enjoy eternal life in the next. And the way we'll do it is, band will come up and everybody will stand and then I'll offer a prayer for you. And then I'll ask you just to raise a hand. If you want to make that your prayer, I'll ask you just to raise your hand and then we can maybe just chat to you at the end and have a word of prayer with you if you've responded. But I want to encourage you, that opportunity is coming at the end. Let me ask you to imagine something with me. Can you imagine meeting Jesus? Imagine you're at work tomorrow. I don't know what you do. Maybe you work for the Inland Revenue. Maybe you work in an office somewhere. And um, what happens is, as you're at your desk, a Jewish carpenter enters reception downstairs. He brushes past security. He gets in the lift. He walks across your floor. He comes right up to you at your desk where you're typing on your computer. He puts his hands on your desk. He looks you in the eye. He looks at you directly in a way that no one has quite ever looked at you and loved you like this before and he says two words follow me and then he walks off that's how Jesus recruited Matthew one of his twelve disciples folks who did Jesus think he was who told
talks like this. One time the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, what does God look like? Jesus, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. What does Jesus reply? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Let me ask you, what would you make of a man who walks around Winchester forgiving sins? That's exactly what Jesus did. If you met someone who walked around Winchester forgiving sins, you'd think, and who do you think you are? The Lord God Almighty? Friends, that's exactly who Jesus thought he was. And the reason why he was sentenced to death by the Jewish ruling council was because at his trial, when Jesus was asked, I, I ask you this on oath, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answered the question, I am. And then he told them that one day, after his resurrection and ascension, he'd come back out of the sky and every single eye would see him. And he himself, he claimed that he himself would judge every single person who has ever lived. At that moment, they picked up stones and they started to throw stones at him and they stoned him and Jesus asked them, why are you stoning me? And they replied, for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Sometimes people say, look, it's inconceivable to me. Educated people say, it's inconceivable to me that any first century Jew would claim to be God. First century Jews didn't think about God in that way. They thought of God as one. The Lord our God is one. No first century Jew, such as Jesus, for example, would ever have claimed to be God. Therefore, because Jesus couldn't have been God, therefore Christianity is false, which is why I don't believe that Christianity is true. But my friends, this claim is one of the best reasons why I am a Christian. Because even without using the Bible, we know for a fact from secular, non-Christian sources that thousands of first century Jews came, came to believe that Jesus was God very soon after the crucifixion. We know that as far away as Rome, Tacitus tells us that there were, quote, an immense multitude of people in Rome who were willing to die for the belief that Jesus was God very soon after the crucifixion. I want to ask, what caused thousands of first century Jews to stand on their theological heads and come to believe that a man was God? There is no other possible historical explanation other than the resurrection of Christ. The reason why Christianity exploded into existence, folks, at the end of the day, is because there was abundant, sufficient, early evidence that Jesus really had risen from the dead. It was an undisputed fact that the tomb was empty. There were at least 550 people who had met the risen Jesus and were willing to be interviewed. They had met him over a period of six weeks. They'd had meals with him. They'd had long conversations with him. They had touched his resurrected body. So Jesus says things like, Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. It's real. They reach out and touch his body. It's real flesh and blood. It's really him. Folks, this is not the Jesus of faith. This is not just my personal Jesus. Tacitus, Tacitus is talking about the Jesus of history. Very quickly, four reasons why 
I'm a Christian. Number one, because where we can test the reliability of our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they pass the test with flying colours. For example, archaeologists have examined Luke's references to 54 cities, 32 countries and 9 islands and found not a single mistake. We have five early non-Christian sources, Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Lucian of Samosata and the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. These are all anti-Christian early sources that corroborate the basic facts of Jesus' life and death and even have reports of his resurrection. Second reason, because the New Testament is written too early for it to include legendary developments. Scholars have shown that it takes more than two generations for any core of historical truth to be corrupted by distortion and exaggeration and legendary accretions. We know the Gospel is written, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are written within one generation of the events they describe and many of them are written by eyewitnesses. Third reason why I'm a Christian, because we have 5,664 early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. These are found all over the Mediterranean. These are all copies of the original texts that have been lost. And what we've done is we've gone and got all of them and we've examined them all under a microscope and we look to see, are they any different? And the differences between them. Folks, if they are all saying essentially the same thing, we know that there hasn't been any miscopying of the Bible going on. And they do say all essentially the same thing. So we know that the New Testament that we have when we go into a bookshop in Winchester and buy one off the shelf, we know that is an accurate copy of the original and we know that the original, it seems to me, is a reliable record of what Jesus actually said and actually did. Because it's written so early by eyewitnesses. Fourth reason is because the historical, evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection is so strong. The historical evidence for the resurrection is so strong that it just leaves you with no, nowhere else to turn. There's no plausible alternative explanation. How else could Christianity have exploded when it did, where it did, with the force that it did? So it's not, folks, just my own personal Jesus. It's not just what works for me. No. It's not just faith. It's solid history. I'm asking you this morning to step, not into the unknown, but onto solid history. It's reality. Let's listen to our final song from our friend, Robbie Williams. Now, Robbie Williams gets a lot of stick, in my opinion, but I want to give him some credit. Uh, if physical perfection is what you're going for in life, if how you look is that important to you, then Robbie Williams is right. You're in a very vulnerable position. What happens when your reflection isn't perfect anymore? What happens when you suffer rejection? All six of our songs are exploring the same question. Where do you get your value from? So can I ask you that in closing? Are you getting your value from the fact that Jesus really died for you? Or is that just lip service? I don't know, maybe for Robert Williams it's just lyrics. But is it just words for you? Is it more than just words? Hey, we might not want to admit it, but it's a fact that we do base our self-worth on our looks, our accomplishments, on what we've achieved. And when that gets fractured, of course our self-worth takes a hit. So many of us get our sense of value from how somebody else treats us, or how they make us feel. 
But what if that person disappoints you? The problem is we're getting our value from the wrong places. Our value, folks, should come solely from our Heavenly Father, from the Most High God. We should get our value from the fact that we are children of the Most High God. And how do I know that God values you and me that highly? Because God gave up what was most precious to Him. God gave up His only Son for you. My story is this. I didn't put God first in life. I didn't love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. On the contrary, I took him for granted. I was pleased to be alive, but I just lived my life for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was missing out on a relationship with God. I'd alienated myself from God. It's like this load that I was carrying of all the stuff that I'd done wrong. So imagine this is a list of all the things I'd done wrong. It's like a barrier between me and God. I might well believe he's there, but I can't get through to him because it's in the way. And the Bible says if we, if we live and die like this, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So we die under this weight, this barrier. We never get through it because there's no way through. It's too thick. We carry this load of this thing all the way through our life and even into death and we're separated from God forever. And this is the key thing, you see. It's because the punishment for sin is death, because the wages of sin is death. That's why it's so significant that Jesus died on the cross. That's why it's so significant that Jesus really died taking your place. He took this barrier upon himself. He took it away. It was nailed to the cross. That's what he was carrying. He wasn't crucified for his own sins. He was crucified for yours. He carried this barrier to the cross. As it were, it was nailed to his hands as he stretched out his hands to embrace you. He carried your load. You didn't carry it anymore. Jesus came and died instead of you. And that is where you can get your value from. You're loved that much by God. God loves you that much. Hey, listen. You have an enemy. Now, you may well not believe that this enemy even exists. But you have an enemy. And his agenda is to use the hurtful things that people have said to you, to use disappointments, to use rejections, to use unfair situations that have happened to you. He's going to try and use those things to rob you of your destiny, which is to know God and to enjoy Him forever in heaven. And I don't know, maybe somebody has rejected you, but the good news is that God accepts you and has already approved of you. Psychologists tell us that you and I get ourselves get our sense of self-worth from what we think the most important person in our life thinks of us. It could be your parents, it could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your ex-boyfriend, your ex-girlfriend. But the problem with this philosophy is that all of those people could say and do things that bring us heartache and pain. And if we're only receiving our value from them, over time we'll feel less and less and less valuable. And so the key to retaining a true sense of value is to let your heavenly Father be the most important person in your life. To base your sense of value on what God says about you. And when you make mistakes, God says, I've got mercy for your mistakes. You can get up and go because your future is brighter than your past. And you may say, Adrian, I haven't really got it. I can put my hand up if you really want me to, but I haven't got anything special to offer. God says, no, listen, you're special to me. That's why I sent Jesus to die for you. God says, to me, you're amazing. You're beautiful. You're one of a kind. 
Yes, people can say things that may wound your spirit. But if you will learn to get your sense of value from your Heavenly Father, you can walk through life knowing in your heart, I'm approved, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed. I'm a son or a daughter of the King. You'll feel extremely valuable. You didn't just come off an assembly line. No, you're one of a kind. You are unique. And out of all the things that God has created, what God is most proud of is not Mount Everest. God didn't send Jesus from heaven because he wanted to somehow get closer to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. No, God sent Jesus for you. You're the most valuable thing in the whole of creation. Folks, you're his prized possession. I have four daughters. God had one son and loves you so much that he gave up his one and only son so that you could not perish but rather have eternal life. That's how valuable you are. You're made in his image. He made you like him with a sense of right and wrong. With the ability to love deeply. With the ability to make music and to choose. He made you special. He gave you your dignity. He made you for relationship. And if you respond this morning, this is what will happen according to Luke 15 verse 7. You raise your hand, maybe at the back, and in heaven according to Luke 15 verse 7, God will say, angels, 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 gather around, gather around, gather around, come over here, come over here. Come over here to Winchester, I want you to see something. Can you see that hand at the back? There, on the left, can you see that? That, that's Fiona. That's my daughter. I am so proud of her. And then God will say, angels, angels, come over here. All of you, come on, come on, come on, come on. Look at the back. Can you see up there in the gallery? Yeah, the back row. Do you know who that is? That is Mark. That's my son. I am so proud of him. And the angels rejoice, the Bible says, over one lost person who comes back to God. You can be the cause of great celebration in heaven, even this morning. Can I ask you, who's your owner? Will you come back to your heavenly Father, even this morning? You know, I could present to you two handkerchiefs right now. One is from a museum, one is from my pocket. They're identical. One is worth £100,000. One is worth 50 pence. One was owned by Elvis Presley. The other was not. What's my point? It's who your owner is. That's where you get your value from. It's not your boss at work who owns you. It's not your landlord. No, the creator of the universe breathed his life into you. He fashioned you. He formed you. It's his oxygen that you're breathing. He gave you your personality. He intricately made you. People may try and push you down and say all kinds of things, but you're a son or a daughter of Creator God, your loving Heavenly Father. And I'm asking you this morning, do you want to come back to Him? you want to come back to God? you want to know His embrace? Jesus who looks you in the eye, puts his hands on your desk and says, follow me. Do you want to come to him? Do you want him to take your load? Do you want to walk out even of this building without carrying this thing anymore? you want to come to him if you do? You can come to him right now.